1: and here we are again on basic folk thank you so much for checking out the podcast today i am your host cindy house let's get into it molly obamsawin this is a great episode molly is the mighty bassist songwriter singer from lula wiles whose musical talents run tandem to her activist spirit She actually really had no choice in the matter, seeing that her parents met through their advocacy for Abenaki and First Nations sovereignty battles. Molly's dad is a member of the Odinak abenaki Nation, and her mom, at the time they met, was following and supporting tribal land claim initiatives. Along with Lula Wiles, her solo career, which is a bit of a new venture for Molly, and her side player gigs – Molly works with several racial and environmental justice organizations based in Wabanaki homelands and is the founder and executive director of Bamazine Land Trust. She is a crucial voice when it comes to speaking out for First Nation representation and justice in the Roots music world and beyond. She is generous with her knowledge, but also, as her Twitter profile reads, pay me for educating you, which you can do. She has her PayPal linked right there, and I will link it on our website. Oh, <laughs> Molly grew up in rural Maine among five siblings and was constantly surrounded by music in her family. Her dad is a musician and Molly was always performing as a little kid, constantly trying to make people happy and laugh while being a goofball. She was also made aware of the cruel stereotypes and racism in the world at an early age through mainstream culture. As she became older, she gravitated towards the upright bass and talks in the pod about her jazz sensibilities and what drew her to the instrument. She also talks about how she came to songwriting last, but has managed to successfully combine a very rad, sweepy, dreamlike style while, quote, puncturing the dream haze of our apocalyptic capitalist world. On the new Lulu album Shame and Sedition, Molly's songs really shine through with highlights being Everybody Connected, Do You Really Want the World to End, and In Dreams. I look forward to more conversations with Molly, hopefully about a solo record, No Pressure Molly. We'll take a listen to a song from Lula Wiles' new album and then we'll get to our conversation with Molly Obamsawin on Basic Folk. Here is Do You Really Want the World to End from Lula Wiles on Basic Folk. If I could thanks so much for talking to me today it's so great to see you
0: nice to see you too yeah thanks for having me
1: I first of all want to preface this interview by saying that I feel like you should have your own podcast (laughs) where I interview you every week about all the things that you do because there's like so much to cover here so so we probably won't get to everything but we'll do our best
0: great sounds good
1: (laughs) So, all right, it's my understanding that your parents met through activism for Abenaki and First Nations sovereignty battles in a Vermont courtroom, in fact, Um, and your dad is a member of the Abenaki tribe and your mom is not, but was like a huge supporter and follower. She was a nursing student when they met. What is the story of like who they were when they met and what they were doing at the time.
0: Nice. I like the starting point.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Uh,
0: <laughs> yeah. So this is um, in the late 80s, I think, um, or early 90s when my parents met. My mom is Jewish. She's from New York. And my dad is, yeah, he's a citizen at Odinak, a Nation, which is in Quebec. Um, and he started doing a lot more. He's a musician as well. So he started getting a lot more involved in activism um, as like the AIM movement was um, really picking up steam in the 70s and, and 80s. Which movement? Uh, sorry, American Indian movement, AIM. Okay. Yes. Um, that was really big for Indian country. And a lot of nations ended up getting um, federal recognition in the 70s, um, especially, you know, as a, I guess, as a, an outcome of the movement that was going on. Um, oh,
1: so that's like relatively a new thing. What is? The federally recognized...
0: So, yeah, I can I can explain it a little bit. So, a lot of tribes, tribal nations, have been sort of federally recognized since the beginning of America, I guess. And basically how that was determined was if you had a treaty and there was like treaty negotiations between your tribe and the United States government that um, forms like a, I guess, a federally recognized status. But a lot of nations didn't have you know ongoing treaties per se with the with the nation after um the late 1800s and so some of them didn't have this status as federally recognized even though they are Mm -hmm. nations and they have been nations since before america was a nation right that's Mm -hmm. um what that's derived from and but in the 70s and 80s through the american indian movement um folks were going through the federal recognition process folks who didn't have tribal status um, as a federally recognized tribe.
1: Like those who didn't have it to begin with or those who lost it?
0: Exactly. Yeah, a lot had lost it and yeah, many especially out here in the East didn't have it um, to begin with because by the time, I guess, America was founded, right, like uh, or, you know, declared itself a nation, um, the East had already been having, um, Eastern nations, Eastern tribes had already been having interactions with colonial settlers and colonizers for hundreds of years right so the, the whole like treaties movement and federal recognition thing kind of skipped over a lot of the eastern folks at first right and, and mm. I think in the 70s especially that's when you see some of the the tribes in Connecticut, the Pequot, and everything getting recognized, and the tribes of Maine with the Maine Indian Claims Settlement Act and their federal recognition. in, I think 1975, but I could be wrong about that. So so anyway, a lot of these tribes realizing that they don't have this status, and with that status comes reservation land, federally reserved land, um, mm-hmm. which is you know important, and certain basically the government has some um, responsibility uh, fiscal responsibility and whatnot mm-hmm. um and there's mm-hmm. also jurisdictional implications i guess of federal recognition wow we went here fast
1: that's right <laughs> it's okay
0: <laughs> so um yeah so in vermont at that time the Missisquoi, there's a community in swanton Missisquoi area which is like the top of lake champlain it's really close to the border in vermont and historically there was a um a tribal community there that my nation, Odinac, had a lot of um, engagement with, interaction with, and sort of like fluidity with um, for quite a long time. So, that some certain folks that still live there were interested in getting federal recognition. Um, and so, my dad came down from Odinac, where he was living, um, to try to help them, see if he could help them uh, in mm-hmm. that. So, sort of as an ally, but also as an Abenaki person who was not from the Missisquoi community, but um, wanted to see how he could help out. And my mom was living in Vermont in like a hippie situation, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Um, Is your dad like a lawyer? Does he have a law background? No, no. He was just an activist. So there's a a few different sort of strategies as tribal nations folks, First Nations folks trying to get um, court cases basically to happen. So they were doing fish ins, which um, they would go and fish in places without licenses and try to get you know the cops and the courts to like try them and then you test sort of what the aboriginal title aboriginal rights are in that area based on that court Mm. case it's an opportunity to be able to argue for some kind of change
1: interesting wow
0: there's lots of these throughout turtle island
1: yeah so i have so many questions for you and i don't (laughs) know the order of these but like the role that your parents played when it came to like instilling a sense of activism in you
0: yeah um I think it's a a lot of folks with my background and other, you know, I guess BIPOC folks say this, like, I wouldn't necessarily be an activist if I didn't have to be, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. but um, the world around us is such that if I don't speak out about things, and if people like me don't speak out about things, we don't have equality, you know, we don't have that now, right? And Mm -hmm it's either you just like accept that you're um treated lesser, you know, and you have these injustices systemically and sort of on a person to person level, right as well and you either accept that you have those and you just you know, move on or you are crushed by them and that's why we see lots of, you know, lots of different kinds of mental and physical health uh, impacts in in our communities, right? But mm. or you fight. <laughs> and my family does honestly both. I think most most people's families have a bit of both, right? Some people yeah. don't have the support that they need, and luckily, I was I'm privileged to say that I got the support that I needed um, in order to turn me into an advocate um, and an activist. And I have a lot of other privileges, uh, like my education, you know, and the fact that I have lighter skin compared to my own siblings right and so there's a lot that um enables Mm -hmm. me to do what i do right now but also i come from i guess a long line of activists on both sides of my family so that Mm -hmm. helps too
1: (laughs) also i hear you come from a long line of musicians like your dad is a musician and you have a lot of musicians in your family can you talk about how music in terms of like musical performance and an appreciation for music has been treated historically in your family
0: Yeah. Um, so I'll start with my mom's side, I guess, because that's, they don't actually have as many musicians, but, um, a great appreciation for the arts. And my, my grandfather on my mom's side was a writer himself, um, and an activist. Um, but he also did, you know, poetry and a lot of political essays kind of similar to the things that I do. Familiar, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But a lot of visual artists on that side of the family as well. So writers and visual artists. So I really grew up with a lot of support and encouragement to do that kind of thing, which a lot of mm-hmm. folks don't, you know. Um, and then on my my dad's side, um, yeah, my dad is a musician. He's a guitarist and singer, and uh, his dad was also a guitarist and mandolin player, and they grew up playing gigs together, um, and so that's always been... It's always been a thing in my family, I guess. All of my siblings play music in one capacity or another. Two drummers. um, Two of my brothers are drummers. and You need two drummers. Yeah, yeah, because sometimes one of them isn't as good. (laughs) I won't say who. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, Yeah, and, yeah, all my siblings and my uncle plays bass, you know. Everyone has an uncle who plays bass, too. That's a thing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You have five siblings and you grew up in rural Maine, like the country, right? Country, country time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I actually have six siblings. Um, One of them is older and we didn't connect with her until more recently. Um, She's the oldest. Yeah. And my dad didn't necessarily know about her. uh, And she's on my, yeah, through my dad and So I have six siblings, (laughs) Um, but grew up with five around me. And um, I grew up and my two closest siblings grew up together in uh, Maine and New Hampshire.
1: So what did the scene look like for your childhood in a home with all those kids? Like what maybe what did play look like? Also, like, okay, so it sounds like not all six kids were around at the same time, but like. How do you relate to silence or alone time because of that fam- family dynamic?
0: Oh God, Yeah, I have never, I think to my detriment maybe, I've never been one that needs or thinks that I need much alone time. <laughs> um, it's really, it is good for me. Um, but I, I tend to take my alone time when I like, you know, go for a run or go do something on my own. It's not necessarily like me being sitting alone on a rock in the woods or something, you know, although I think that would be good for me. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I tend to um, like being surrounded by people because I always was. And, yeah, you're right to say that my siblings weren't necessarily all around at the same time. I have two older brothers that um, would sort of be in and out of the house um, and, like, in and out of babysitting roles and stuff for me and my sister who's just a year and a half older than me. And... Yeah, it was good growing up with my siblings around. I would definitely not want to be an only child.
1: <laughs> mm. Where were you in the order?
0: I'm the second youngest, but my little brother is nine years younger than me. Mm. So I was the youngest for a long time. And The I, youngest part one. Yeah, youngest part one. I was actually like quite offended and whiny about it when he was born. <laughs> I get it. Yeah,
1: you do, yeah.
0: I made this uh <laughs> this pie chart um, After Simeon was born And I posted it on the fridge And it was like this like Venn diagram Of mom's love or whatever it, Or it was a pie chart of yeah Mom's love and it was like Autumn my older sister like 15% Simeon Like 85% And like Molly like 1% And I was like very clearly so jealous Of all the attention he was getting
1: Which brings me to my next question (laughs) about you being uh, like performative as a little kid. Mm. Um, I read that you like love trying to make people happy and laugh while being kind of a goofball. How do you reflect on those early expressions of performance as a kid? And how do you relate to that kid now as like an adult performer?
0: Mm. That's a good question. I've been actually, you know, trying to find more balance in the kinds of roles I play as a performer, I think. In Lula Wiles, you know, it's a, other than myself, a, like, white band. And um, I have found that I tend to be the one who is, like, talking about all of the less pleasant things, right? Like, and really trying to get those conversations going from stage. And I've been told that I'm, like, I've got the, like, angry vibe on stage or something, right? And it's not necessarily this lighthearted, goofy kid that I was you know and mm-hmm. that I that I am inside but I have some other projects where I'm able to like really expand and be that way I have um the sort of maybe mysterious band Taco Butt that me and Issa mm-hmm. it's a side project and we sing and play funny songs and it's got a lot of improvisation and um it's a pretty liberating experience to play in Taco Butt because we get to spread out in that way.
1: <laughs> Taco Bud is a (laughs) must-see. It is truly a must-see. Also, you guys are kind of mean. Like, Issa's kind of mean in Taco (laughs) Bud, but it's funny. Yeah, yeah, that's her vibe. Like a mean funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mean funny. Uh, Okay, questions now about—so this is—you wrote about this, um, I think, in one of your essays. You said, from childhood, Americans are fed distorted images and narratives about Natives— From barely human savages in Disney's Peter Pan and Pocahontas to the whooping and leathered fringe sports team mascots and holiday costumes. So growing up, how did your parents or other native adults around you approach these images and narratives and popular culture with you and your siblings?
0: I wasn't allowed to watch Peter Pan when I was growing up. Like my mom especially was like always like, and I ended up seeing it, you know, at a friend's house or something. Um, But... There were certain movies that we weren't allowed to see like you know if we saw them at the at the movie store wow that i guess that Mm -hmm. dates me a little bit the the dvd shop um we VHS, uh, yeah vhs that too i was like you know (laughs) dvds were like more in my prime when i was like nine
1: laser disc
0: yes exactly um yeah so there were certain movies we weren't allowed to rent out and We only had
1: it was it was probably like a mixture of like oh this is you don't want your kids to see batman forever or Peter like different reasons for batman forever and peter pan
0: yeah i don't think i ever saw any of the batman movies honestly (laughs) i don't know why are they is that why
1: yeah yeah Ah. they're really scary
0: (laughs) yeah i mean yeah i mean we watched pocahontas so it wasn't like everything right we weren't totally under a rock but peter pan is like explicitly so bad right that theme song right savages Mm -hmm. savages barely even human like literally the words okay you know Mm -hmm. um we also we only had like native american barbie and like barbies of color we weren't allowed to have like white barbie which that's a cool parenting decision i think even though barbie itself is kind of problematic for lots of reasons um (laughs) and uh so they're like those sort of like censorship things almost where it was like they, they were really trying to like limit my exposure to racist, white supremacist imagery and white dominated white culture stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Which the effects of which I didn't really fully understand until like now, you know, or the mm-hmm. last few years as I've been expanding as a person and growing. Um, yeah. the other, I guess other things to mention were just my mom and dad were really um, careful to like ask me what I was learning in school, especially in history and social studies and stuff. And really ask like, yeah, what, you know, what did you do for the month of November? Like, what are your Thanksgiving activities in school? Right. And then talk to me about those.
1: Yeah. What did they have to say?
0: Well, my mom has um, a habit of getting in fights with like every school board that For any school district that my family has ever been in Oh, I love (laughs) her Yeah, she's awesome (laughs) Um, She's like a local nuisance to, yeah You know, (laughs) racist uh, (laughs) curriculum builders, I guess (laughs) But, um, so so stuff like that Um, I just remember specifically, you know, in like 8th grade When I was, or 7th grade in middle school When I was learning about the local history of Farmington, Maine, right And they were like, Pierpool was the last Abenaki person In this part of the world, right And here we are in Abenaki family, you know, in mm-hmm. uh, in our kitchen being like, so what do you think about this? Like, why, why does this feel weird to you? <laughs> you know, and then I don't know, you know, I was never allowed to do the Pledge of Allegiance. Like my mom would write a note to my teachers and be like, she's not standing for the Pledge of Allegiance, right? And like, I was always the only one in the class. So mm. it just like built an awareness of something, I guess, over time. Mm-hmm. Embarrassment for a while and then reflection. Mm.
1: What has been your experience with the music of the Abenaki people and how do you re- relate that into your own musical sensibilities?
0: Well, it's a it's a complicated question. So Abenaki is, and I say Abenaki too, because that's, I hear it all the time, people mispronouncing it and it's just in my head. But Abenaki is um, a mistranslation of Wabanaki, which is sort of the the larger area, the confederation of Wabanaki tribes of Wabanaki. Uh, so-called Maine and actually so-called New England it stretches all the way down to Wampanoag that's the same word as Wabanaki just a different dialect and it means people of the Dawnland right so there's lots of different bands of Native folks of Wabanaki folks within that and Abenaki uh, is how the French, um, pronounced that word and, and how they referred to like the number of different tribes that they were dealing with in colonial times, right? Or the early colonial times. And so I just want to say that because Abenaki music itself is part of this network of Wabanaki music of Northeastern native, uh, indigenous mm, okay. music and, Abenaki-specific music doesn't necessarily exist um, because my my nation is made up of refugee communities coming in from all of these different bands. And so, like, I learned the Penobscot Honor Song um, because that's a really close dialect to what we speak at Odenak. And, like, that is our music too, right? And, like, we... The, the Mi'kmaq Honor Song is the same, but, it, like, the words are a little bit different dialect, right? Anyway, mm-hmm. I say this because... Um, I grew up hearing uh, some, you know, Wabanaki music at Pow Wow and everything. We weren't really, my dad didn't play a ton around us, um, but he knows some songs and I hear songs at ceremony, but I don't necessarily know the, the canon too well. I'm always learning songs and um, mm-hmm. there's a movement to like be writing more songs as well. More tribal songs. Have you written any? I've some semi written two. Yeah. So it's just trying it out. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, like, I'm a songwriter in, like, the, like, American idiom of, like, pop and indie and rock and country and whatever the heck you mm-hmm. call it. I really avoid using the word Americana because I hate it. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's hard to, like, or it's just a, n- not necessarily hard, but it's just a different thing to channel into to try to write something that is, like, more like us and I also don't want to sort of pigeonhole what native music sounds like because the songs that I write in the little wilds are native music, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. And there's folks like Jeremy Dutcher and everything who like totally are so innovative with the traditional songs and everything. So,
1: on your Kennedy Center live stream, you're talking about Cannibals, <laughs> uh, Cochino the Cannibal mm-hmm. with the very, with the icy heart, and the story like starts off like really terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, which made me want to know more about like what is the tradition of telling very scary tales in wabanaki culture
0: oh that's an interesting question yeah, I guess uh th- there are a lot and they're meant to teach you lessons, you know, not to be afraid, but like they're supposed to teach you like how to respond, right? When something scary is happening. So like in that case, and I can't fully tell the story right now because it's out of season and the snakes will come and get me if I tell it. Respect. <laughs> yes. But go you know, watch the stream. <laughs> <laughs> right. But in that story, like the, the Gino shows up and it's really scary. Right. And instead of like killing it or something, the the Wabanaki woman welcomes it into her home and tries to appeal to its, I guess, like, just its humanity. Not that that's really a fitting word for a cannibalistic ice giant, but, you know, it's it's goodness, it's heart, basically, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what happened when scary people showed up on our shores, right? That's what we did. (laughs) We welcomed them in. We were like, have some food. You've had a long journey, you know? And so we learned from those things.
1: Well, after you told the tale, I definitely learned. I thought it was a great tale. Thank you. And then uh, the song that you played afterwards was also very good. Thank you. Um, So at Maine Fiddle Camp, that's where you were able to, you met Eleanor. She came from your town. So you guys met each other in a different iteration, but you were able to connect with Ellie and Isa at Maine Fiddle Camp. Um, Can you set the scene for your experience at camp? And how do you think having such a strong musical foundation there has impacted your desire for that type of community?
0: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I was really excited about that kind of music. And really, Maine Fiddle Camp is like an amalgamation of all these different kinds of music, not just Québécois, but the Cape Breton music, the like New England traditional music, which is like this dorky thing that I was really excited about at the time. Um, And New England music in itself is just like an amalgamation of all of these different influences, I guess, coming from the South, coming from the North, coming from Cape Breton, coming from Métis tunes being written in the middle of the continent and further West and everything, you know. So um, I was really excited. I really didn't know what I was doing, you know, as any young bass player, you know, I like I should have been kicked out of a lot of jams. I don't think I was, but... (laughs) I was, uh, yeah. I was just figuring it out, and that's Main Fiddle Camp is like a really good place where people just figure it out, and it's mm-hmm. you know welcoming in that way musically. But I also definitely went for the social elements, and I was always sort of getting in trouble, like making out with boys and stuff like that, and you know the <laughs> normal camp stuff too. Yeah, um, and that's where Ellie and Issa and I performed together for the first time. Nice, yeah. and
1: you were playing the bass at camp, mm-hmm. um. What did you like about the instrument? I hear uh, from you in this interview that you had an uncle that played bass, (laughs) Um, but how has your relationship to the bass evolved?
0: Yeah, I think I started playing bass um, because my dad already had a son that played drums, my older brother, and I wanted to like be a musician like dad I wanted to be able to jam with dad you know and like he played the guitar you know he didn't need a guitar player he didn't need something else like I don't know bass I think maybe he even had some words of encouragement for me playing the bass Um, (laughs) but I started on clarinet and cello and violin you know and then I made my way to bass um, when I was big enough to play it um, in fifth grade did you start on electric or upright upright which maybe is strange but I liked being the only person doing that in the ensemble <laughs> and um, I don't know I mean I have a lot of reflections on why I love the bass now but I think then it was I was just really excited to like be part of the band. <laughs> yeah. You know it's good. It feels good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Jazz
1: and improvisation are a part of your musical identity which may surprise people. Um, you went to a jazz camp in Brooklyn, you went to Berkeley for jazz. How do you think your affinity and experience in jazz makes you a better musician, a better bandmate, better side woman? Mm.
0: Well, I mean, in all the ways, you know, jazz is like, also jazz is such a, it has such specific connotations. And I think it um, people have limited ideas of what jazz is or isn't, right? But um, improvisation as a framework, I guess, for understanding music is so important and i think it is really connected to um the kinds of various kinds of folk music as well you know even in old time music where there's not like solos people are improvising all the time every time they go through the tune right Mm. it's not just like exactly note for note what you played last time right people are putting their um own personality into it you know their own energy and i think that's so crucial um and it's what makes music interesting It what it's what makes music work and not work in various circumstances you know Hmm. Um, yeah improvisation and just like having that that kind of a approach I guess
1: what a cool through line
0: (laughs) yeah jazz is everything (laughs) (laughs) I really believe that but I'm gonna you know (laughs) not be too corny about it
1: you said I came to songwriting last I think the kinds of songs I write are largely based in my experience, as a human and as an indigenous person. So it seems like you've always been a writer. You write beautiful and important essays on matters concerning native people in America. Um, Your songs cover related subjects just as beautifully. How do you feel writing, whether it be songs, essays, articles, how has writing helped you grasp a strong sense of identity?
0: Mm, That's a cool question. Writing was the first thing that I ever came to as a, it was my first obsession, even sort of before music, or maybe just in a different way. But it was always like, something I was so excited about, you know, and in high school, I was like, in all the writing clubs, and, you know, and all the advanced writing classes, like I wanted to take creative writing classes and everything I wanted to do spoken word poetry, which I'm glad I graduated from that phase of my life. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it felt like all of my idols that were like beat generation, like poets, you Mm -hmm. know, I I was like, I want to do that. But uh, I mean, writing is so huge. It's really a big way that I process experiences and thoughts. And, you know, some people are external processors, right. Or like internal processors. And I'm just like a a writing processor. <laughs> mm. Like it really takes writing. A typewriter. To, yeah, I'm a typewriter. <laughs> it really takes that for me to, to like really be able to understand things, though, and remember things and sort of organize my thoughts. And um, my favorite writers are the ones who can do that so beautifully about things that are really hard to um, parse out, you know, like those experiences of oppression and everything that are like so... Mm in their nature, brain scrambling, you know, and gaslighting and everything. Mm-hmm. Writing is such an important um, tool of, you know, yeah, it's it's yeah. a it's a tool of power, you know, and reclamation of power yeah. through writing. And yeah, I resonate with it that way, for sure.
1: That's awesome. During the pandemic, you created a land trust. Bomazine
0: Land Trust.
1: Bommazine Land Trust. Yeah. Can you explain what the organization does?
0: Yeah. So um, Well, there's this movement um, going on right now, whether you know it or not, uh, called the Land Back Movement. Um, Indigenous people are getting their ancestral lands returned to them in one way or another, ideally by allies sort of coming to the conclusion themselves that um, environmental, land justice, racial justice, all comes down to colonialism and the land, right, the original injustices of this continent I guess this hemisphere um, and definitely the uh, origins of the climate catastrophe that we're all facing right now. So mm-hmm. it's, I guess, yeah, inspired or a part of hoping to be a part of the land back movement in the Northeast in Wabanaki Ag. And um, it's led by indigenous women um, primarily. Uh, we're doing work, rematriation work, which just means that the women are, are leading in issues of land justice. And, um yeah, my nation, um, the Abenaki, the Odenak Abenaki nation, um, is not federally recognized, to come full circle, uh, in the United States, right? Our recognition is in Quebec. Our reserves, we have two of them. They're both in Quebec. And that is um, despite the fact that we come from down here, right? We come from south of the border. Um, and we cross into Canada to take refuge from colonial violence. And so the work that bombazine is doing is trying to... Um, reestablish a presence and a framework really for the future of our nation and our relatives um, back in our traditional homelands.
1: All right. I have a couple questions about this. I think it's awesome and congratulations on uh, on this amazing work. Um, So if you can help me understand this, you said few Americans know that Indian tribes have a legal status among America's racial and ethnic groups. And the Bomazine Land Trust is rooted in the land back movement, particularly for the Wabanaki homelands, which are divided by the U.S. and Canada border. Mm-hmm. Am I getting it right so far? Yes. Okay. Does that mean—I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but I bet you do. <laughs> um, does that mean that members of Wabanaki Nation have a different kind of, like, passport or something that allows them passage at the
0: border? So— I do have the answer to this question. Um, the J Treaty, which is a Canadian treaty, um, makes it so that I can cross into Canada with my um, tribal ID. So when you're an enrolled member of a tribe, you can have a federally-recognized tribe or a state-recognized tribe. Um, you have a tribal ID. And to get into Canada, I can use that ID in the United States, it doesn't work that way. Um, so, this is my understanding. Um, f- like, for tribes that are recognized in the United States, you can't just cross into Canada with your tribal ID. That doesn't work. Unless there's a specific situation. I think the Blackfeet, um, Blackfoot, Blackfeet, have um, that kind of situation. Maybe certain Cree communities. to so
1: back and forth, back and the forth. U.S. and Canada have yeah. to recognize. And yeah. the Blackfeet
0: have that? I think so. I don't want to, like, miss... Okay. Yeah, but um, sure. certain tribes do, basically. A lot of the tribes that um took refuge in the borderlands, right? And so they were divided by the border like us, you know. I I'm not I don't know what the situation is down in um for, with the Mexican border. I think there is something similar um for the Tohono O'odham and other nations down there, but I'm not positive. But yeah, so that being said, I can't get into the United States with my ID, I don't think, right? Um I would need my American passport.
1: Mhm. Yeah. So, I know that Like during like this passage, how has this passage worked like during the pandemic? Like Canada's closed as far as I know. It is. So does that also apply to First Nations people who have recognition?
0: So it's been really complicated. Um, It does not apply on face value. It doesn't apply. Um, And my dad was able to get back and forth um, to his home um, on the res up there and to his home down here. Into um, all of his family down here, right? For the first part, but they increased the restrictions um, a few months ago, and so that you, even if you um, were a tribal citizen and you you um, could use you know your dra- your J treaty right to cross into Canada, you had to provide a. Um, certificate of a negative covid test having been taken within three days of your crossing
1: oh, so right. this
0: happened right and that was a really big complicating factor and i'll, I'll tell the story because i think it really speaks to how violent the border is my dad and i and my partner were trying to cross so that dad could get um, his vaccine at the reserve and they had just made this um this new restriction. And we got we didn't know about it, and we got turned away. And that night, my dad contracted COVID. And he's 73 years old. He's been a smoker for over 50 years, right? Like, mm. and because he didn't have a place to stay, right, that was safe. He stayed uh, in a house where people were known to have had COVID. Oof. That is the power of the colonial border, right, against Indigenous people. That like going to get his vaccine was not um, accepted, and he's okay. You know, he recovered, which is miraculous, oh, honestly. Goodness. Yeah, but like that border is fake, you know? And it is mm-hmm. a power, I guess, a, you know, a domination tool used against indigenous people and most highly impacting indigenous peoples whose homelands and whose resources exist on both sides. And regular access is a part of our sustenance, it's a part of our ability to survive. And this feels like a very clear example.
1: Hmm, for sure. Now I want to hear a little bit more about the recent um, win for the land trust of the Passamaquoddy Tribe mm-hmm. that that you helped facilitate.
0: Yeah, so it's not a land trust. It's um, they're they're a tribal nation. They're federally recognized. So,
1: but I'm sorry, mm-hmm. I didn't mean to say that. But the. Yeah the Bomazine Land Trust help facilitate this?
0: No. Okay. No. Yeah, okay. I'm going to correct you. Yeah, I was part of it um, through Sunlight Media Collective, which is uh, an amazing Wabanaki and non-Indigenous sort of allies-led um, a media maker team, basically, who document um, stories about um, sort of at the intersections of tribal nations and environmental justice. I think that's the official description of them, right? So we're covering all these stories, documenting all these um, stories about, yeah, like what's going on in Wabanaki country. And um, so I was part of that, just documenting what was happening up there. But I will say the Passamaquoddy tribe was um, able to get into their protection and have returned to them. An island of 140 acres, um, right next to their um, reserve community, uh, Madok Miguk. and um, they had to buy it. But basically, it was for sale through this like creepy, creepy website online. That's like um, buy an island, buy your own island par- paradise, right? And it was just like for sale as a private island. I guess people that have money just buy islands. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's sickening. It's 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 sickening and um anyway so they noticed that it was for sale and they worked with this collective called um first light learning journeys um, which is a collective of conservation groups who are doing anti-racist work and trying to basically right the wrongs that the conservation movement has caused uh, indigenous people which are um massive these wrongs are very Mm -hmm. extensive right the entire um american conservation movement was started as um, a way to dispossess indigenous peoples, right? Just another mechanism uh, by Teddy Roosevelt, who was also a eugenicist. Um, <laughs> Boo. Woohoo. <laughs> right. So, um, anyway, I just really went on a tangent there. Um, but um, First Light got these conservation groups together and they were able to fund the repurchase of this island that was stolen from the tribe. Um, And it is now going back into Passamaquoddy tribal land, and that is incredible.
1: I loved in reading about you and reading your essays, learning about the concept of rematriation, which you explained Mm -hmm. a little bit um, and thinking about the role of women in wabanaki culture like what has been your experience of being a woman in your culture been like
0: yeah um i'm still learning what it means to be a wabanaki woman um femininity in the american sort of cultural ethos is not something that i've really identified with much growing up because Of what is presented and I think a lot of people are feeling that way um, at this time you know just really reflecting on what they've been taught by um, mass media and by the dominant society about like what it means to be a woman like
1: I know like it's it's, thank thank God yeah goodness
0: yeah for For real sake yeah for fuck's sake (laughs) I know it's awful and like yeah and I mean not to not I mean womanhood is whatever you want it to be right and not to knock anyone but I did not identify with you know white Barbie, and I did not identify with all of what was coming at me from um, pop culture, right about that. So, I think in in um, Wabanaki culture, it's a relearning and an unlearning process of of those ideas, and really um, accepting my role as a woman, um, because in yeah, like I said, in the American context, I don't accept that role that I was sort of encouraged to accept and uh so something i've learned is that we are you know in our in our traditions we are the leaders of uh environmental justice um and in standing for the land and protecting the water and that's why you see you know folks like winona LaDuke out there and folks like buffy saint marie out there right like talking about you know why are the buffalo gone or right like talking about all these issues folks like Mm -hmm. me right and and it's i think my learning that role was a big reason why i started bombazine land trust and um you know and bombazine in return i guess is a way for us to explore that so Mm. we're doing food sovereignty work right now we we have been i'm wearing this dirty t-shirt as i'm talking to you and my fingernails are covered in dirt because i've been planting corn and tobacco right and that is that's part of um part of what it means to be a Wabanaki woman, I
1: guess. Hmm. In your national performance work, performance network essay about presenting, can you help me with this word indigenity? Indigeneity. Indigeneity, indigeneity. You were asking all these questions about how your band, label and audience will react to your songs about the native experience and the questions were all very valid. And some of them made me very nervous for you, especially because I have definitely been that audience member that like will run up up to you like and talk to you for 20 minutes about something completely inappropriate. That's all in our past now, Molly. <laughs> um, but I do is, recognize it that. <laughs> um, it makes me wonder, like, how you balance the need to like protect yourself, not only yourself but also protect your heritage, with the need to educate and talk about who you are and what has happened to Indigenous people in America
0: and what is still happening. Yes. Yeah. um, That's a good question. Um, The stage can be, and I would like to have this be the case, and I I took measures to make this the case in Lula Wiles, um, the stage can be a protective mechanism in itself and um, isn't always, right? But um, having that barrier between the audience and you in terms of like, you know, I have the microphone, I'm the one talking, this is the etiquette of being at a show, right? This is my Mm -hmm. space where I can Say what I need to say, um, whether that's in my lyrics or in my presence on the stage, right? The banter. And in Little Wilds, it got to a point where I, um, I asked Ellie and Issa to do the merch table. And I said, I can't have those interactions with the crowd anymore um, because mm-hmm. it was too violent. You know, it was painful. It was uh, traumatizing in a lot of ways. And, um, and they did that. They were like, Of course, we understand this. Yes. Um, which is, it was good of them to do that um that sounds
1: like a really good thing to
0: do yeah yeah it was important for me to um to set that boundary and you know everyone i think every performer has things that they really don't want to you know experience behind the merch table and a lot of people are reluctant to go and meet with fans some people don't you know if you're like at a certain level in your career you don't have to go out and greet the fans so i'll say that like they they took that hit for me because they understood that or i had let them in and made them understand i guess that it was that important um Mm. yeah And, and for i guess the other thing i'll say is through my music i i'm talking about things and on stage i'm talking about things and i'm setting these boundaries um but writing about them in articles is also um something that for me is regenerative i guess it's it's not as exhausting as um it can be in you know talking about things in, in performance settings. And I also do all this other activism behind the scenes that, um, yeah, are not really about directly engaging with white folks to educate them. So <laughs> it's probably good for you, yeah. for your sanity. Yeah. Um, you've talked about your
1: support of mass movements for liberation, like Black Lives Matter and oppression of other indigenous people, particularly from Latin America. Um, how do you relate to other movements for oppressed peoples? And what do you think we can all learn from each other in our each given movements?
0: I think that a lot of these movements um, are actually just the same. And I think that what we need to try to understand is how. You know, So why does the Black Lives Matter movement exist? we can talk about that why does um the movement against folks like monsanto and movement against you know like mass um extractive industry and exploitative industry and the burning of the amazon why are those existing right um imperialism in its original forms and today are like quite quite one in the same you know and um indigenous and black and brown folks have always been um Bearing the brunt of the damage and the violence, um, in these, uh, I guess global systems for profit, you know, and, and so, like, I think studying history is a really good way to, to understand that better. Studying history as documented by the people who, um, were most affected in those times. But yeah, I mean, I, I think, a big problem that we see in activism is um, the sort of siloing off of different issues, right? People are like, I'm gonna be an environmental justice activist, and I'm gonna be a BLM activist, and I'm gonna like talk about homelessness and poverty, and I'm gonna talk about, you know, uh, substance abuse disorders, right? And they are all interconnected. And the more that we can see that, um, the more effective we'll be in um, dismantling the real issues.
1: Mm. So questions about Lula Wiles on the new record um, <laughs> you're a native person in a band with two white people in a genre that is very white um, and in reading about like your experience at Folk Alliance where there have been real efforts to include indigenous and people of color in these white folk spaces um, you experience what you call a cognitive dissonance because you feel like you recognize those efforts and you see those um, indigenous musicians creating community, but you feel like you can't bring your band into that space. Can you expand on that experience and how that might make you feel isolated?
0: I think that it's important for white folks to recognize, and I think many do, that there are they're not entitled to every space, right? They're not entitled to be in every room um, that exists. And, you know, sometimes there's a room that is holding space for indigenous people or black folks, you know, or whatever other identity. Um, and, you know, Lula Wiles was functioning for a long time as a three headed monster where we do everything together. And we, you know, we are Lula Wiles, three women that make up Lula Wiles. Um, and uh, that doesn't work in certain spaces. So as a band and as you know as a musician wanting to be able to bring the music that i make into spaces um where there's folks that understand what i'm saying better or you know that look more like me or whatever it is right i am not able to do that as a member of lula wiles and so that you know encourages me to do other kinds of music and that that's a big reason why i've always played jazz and always kept that um career growing as well on on the other side of things um and I have other projects going on now that are allowing me to do that better. And I'm hoping to do more stuff as a band leader, you know, as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, yeah, the isolation is not a sustainable career plan, I'll say.
1: Right. (laughs) Um, On the song, Everybody, it's about how much time we spend online crafting our personas and the obsessive control we have over ourselves. Um, And you have written so much about the white gaze. And you said this dissonance of crafting your persona runs deeper for women of color. Um, And I think that this song uh, might have um, tones of that. How do you, like, reckon with that? And how has the evolution of, like, how you've controlled your persona, either on stage uh, or online, how has has that evolved for you?
0: Hmm. Yeah. So it's funny, your analysis of – I feel like everyone has a different take on – everybody connected (laughs) um which is it makes me happy it means it's um it's like a rubik's cube kind of song (laughs) which i like um i think that social media is one of the more toxic uh ways of human existence (laughs) Mm. i will say um maybe precisely because we have all of that control and i think of control in itself as um Something that I'm trying to dismantle because I think, you know, our obsession with having control over things is learned, learned. It's colonial, you know, it's a very Western society idea, you know, that comes from, I guess, like folks who write about rematriation talk about this, um, and, and indigenous issues, I guess, that, you know, in, in Genesis, in the Bible, they specifically say that man is, unique within the ecosystem right and has the unique uh ability or responsibility or role of dominating and um domesticating his surroundings right his surroundings mm. um and rematriation is like actually no um first of all her surroundings second of all why not be a part <laughs> of the ecosystem right and so from that there's like all you know from that buds all of indigenous philosophy i guess (laughs) i mean that's a generalization but you know so social media is um just another microcosm of that i don't know and and uh i think online um you just see a lot of toxic behaviors like magnified because um it's just these tiny little blips of human existence right and a lot of it is like trying to make your life seem flawless or your face seem flawless or whatever right or trying to say exactly the thing that will make people think such and such of you with you know running this is like silly to think about in such philosophical terms maybe but like running a lula wiles facebook page you know right like you have to like think about what's going to um What's going to reflect your band ethos? What's going to get the clicks? What's not? I don't know. I think um, that everything connected is about a bit more than just the digital world. Although I think of the digital world as just an extension of um, our our colonial earth. Mm. Yeah. Did I answer your question at all? Yes. I think <laughs> Sorry. so. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe this just shows how my mind works a little bit. Well, I feel like my question was like all down time. here
1: <laughs> on like the first floor and you took it up to like the 10th floor. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> which I appreciate as uh, your fan uh, and someone who has to use the dictionary when I read an article <laughs> that you write. Um, now... I'm going to ask another first floor question that you can take up to the 10th floor. Tell me about your dog.
0: <laughs> Lux. She's so sweet. She's on the other side of the door in this building that I'm in right now, and she's probably missing me because we have that kind of relationship.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, yeah, so her name is Lox. Uh, that is a word in the Penobscot and Passamaquoddy language uh, for wolverine because she has um, very cute little, like, white eyes. She's like black dog with like white markings. And we thought she looked like a badger when we got her. But in um, Wabanaki, we didn't have badgers. Uh, indigenously, she and We had wolverines. Mm. That was the closest thing. She is not she's an Alaskan husky. So yes, because I guess Alaskan huskies are a mix of lots of different things, including Siberian huskies and uh, German shepherds and all these different breeds i guess um specifically oh, dogs yeah specifically for um sled dog racing right for mushing yeah. so yeah but i'm also jewish so i like the name lox because bagels and lox, you know. right <laughs>
1: of course uh, on the day that the record came out you posted a pic of you and lox on a solo hike um and it sounded like you really needed it that day mm. um so in general like when you have a moment like that, what does a hike like that and giving yourself that space mean to you on a day like that?
0: Mm, Well, it was uh, an emotional day for a lot of different reasons. And um, thinking back to when we were in the studio recording that record, you know, it was the weekend of Juneteenth and BLM uprisings were in full swing and we were just, I guess I was just watching white America have this like epiphany about um, itself. (laughs) And, um, you know, and I hope that uh, learning journey continues Uh, and I I see that it is in a lot of ways, although it is grueling uh, at times to, to witness. (laughs) Um, And uh, so I don't know, I was reflecting a lot on what the songs are about and the extreme need for some commentary and a lot of those discussions to come out and uh, a lot of reflection to happen in the world and you know the band itself has done a lot of work and had a lot of um, hard times you know going through those processes I guess and and so that was all behind me on that day when I was um, taking some solo time and just trying to you know be happy to be uh, in my homeland with my dog.
1: Oh alright Molly let's do the lightning round great <laughs> Okay, here we go. What was the
0: first song you learned on the guitar? You always hurt the one you love. The ones you love, it's Mills Brothers. I think that's what they're called, right? The Mills Brothers. They do like barbershop stuff. We'll take it. Yeah, from uh, that movie Blue Violet. It was like this hipster movie uh, about, you know, Blue Valentine, Blue Valentine.
1: Blue Valentine. I think. think. Very Molly answered.
0: (laughs) Blue Velvet, Uh, whatever. (laughs) What is your karaoke song? I don't do karaoke because I'm so bad at it. I don't believe it. (laughs) I really (laughs) am.
1: Who is your first celebrity crush?
0: Taboo from the Black Eyed Peas. (laughs) Uh,
1: Who is the nicest musician you've ever met?
0: Oh, that's such a sweet question. Uh, Ifo Donovan. She's like such an auntie. Like she's like auntie, like you're like, oh my God, do you hate me? Like, are you scolding me? And then she's like, I'm so proud of you. And she always remembers to text you to congratulate you about stuff. (laughs)
1: Uh, First album you bought with your own money.
0: I think it was Pink. I don't remember what the album was, but Pink, the, the you know, singer. Did you yeah. watch the documentary? I did not. I did not. Everybody's talking about it. Oh, gosh. Uh, what was your first concert? Black Eyed Peas. TD Oof. Garden
1: in Boston. Fulfilling a teen dream. Yes. Uh, what is a
0: book you are reading or the last book that you read? Ooh, books. Uh-oh. Um... I've been reading. I think The Beat Queen by Louise Erdrich, but I kind of fell off the wagon. So oh, right. Get yeah. back on.
1: <laughs> flying or invisibility? Oh
0: gosh, flying, flying. Mm.
1: Last one. Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited?
0: Um, Mount Katahdin in Maine. Woof! Love it. Mm-hmm. All right, that's it. We did it. Right, we did it, and my. A computer just told me that it has 10% battery, and this is perfectly timed.
1: Oh, my God. Thank you so much, Molly, and thanks for um, giving us all this great information and for, like, everything that you do for music and for us in the world.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be able to be, uh, you know, have some incongruous thoughts on this podcast.
1: Basic Folk this week was produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton of Townspeople composes our music. Basic Folk is on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. I'm your host, Cindy House. Pleasure to have you listening to the pod today. And if you liked what you heard, this is a really good one to share with your friends and family. So I highly encourage that. You can find Basic Folk wherever you get podcasts or at basicfolk.com. And we'll talk to you next time. Okay. Bye. Bye.